Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Hypergrowth, the podcast that's dedicated to unpacking what it takes to build a rapidly scalable e-commerce business. I'm your host, Arjun Jolly, co-founder of Ad Quadrant, and joining me today is John Roman, the CEO of Battlebox. Battlebox is an e-commerce brand that provides their subscribers with a monthly box of outdoor survival and everyday carry gear handpicked by their team of outdoor experts. Their company does north of 20 million in revenue, and they even have their own Netflix show called Southern Survival, and they've been known to take their customers out to shoot tanks. How badass is that? John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So John, just to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, Battlebox, how you got started? What's the story behind what you're doing today? My background is not, this is technically my third career. So to my um parents' uh, extremely positive feeling about it, I uh, after after university, I decided I was going to play poker professionally. So I did that for uh, about four and a half years. After that, went into sales. Um, so entry level sales sales job, where you know at that point I'm five years older than everybody else, so really had to grind that one out and had a lot of success with it and you know the better part of a decade moved into simply building b2b sales teams so technology software typically you know by the end of it fortune 2000-ish companies targeting the c-suite of of those types of entities and did really really well with it it was definitely the career i was going to stick in and in late 2014 early 2015 I started investing in in companies, companies that were crossing my network. I've always been a big, big believer in in spending time working on your network and and you know increasing the size of it. So I had a weird stint where you know a dozen opportunities in a very short period of time, all from different parts of my network, had crossed my desk. Battlebox was was one of them, and I instantly knew I had to be involved. I was pretty naive at the time when it came to my investing criteria. Basically, I would just invest in it. And uh, if you look at the probably roughly, I think, seven investments I made at that time, the other six went to went to zero. Um, Battlebox was 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 not the case. So invested and became a partner and and got involved in in Battlebox about a week after it officially launched. It quickly had had momentum. Um, I found myself burning from both ends where I had my, my nine to five, and this was my six to 12 every day. And, uh, I finally, about a year in our, our run rate was, was going to be in the eight figures and I had to make a decision. So I, I joined full time and the rest, rest is kind of, kind of history. So it started, sounds like as a bit of a side hustle, right? As you like, it, it, it's it's interesting because you took that that VC approach, right? I mean, you swung seven times, six tanked, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, one succeeded, and that one was something that you got involved in. Started as a side hustle and did that that full pivot, right? Going into it as a right. as a full time career. Yeah, and that was um, not necessarily the 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 plan that for me to get as involved as I did. The original plan was limited capacity. Um, I would give maybe a couple hours a month, more like business advisory 
advisement consulting and quickly realized that somehow my B2B sales skill set somehow was correlating to the the sales and the marketing side. I was taking kind of a, a, a similar approach and, and it was working. So I quickly was inheriting sales, marketing, customer experience, um, and it just, it blossomed. It was, was never the intent, but then I found myself actually enjoying it, which became a problem because if you enjoy something, you want to keep working on it. Awesome. So you've seen, you've seen e-com before the pandemic, through the pandemic, now post-pandemic. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts just in terms of, you know, from your lens and having been in the space for as long as you've been, there's been all these changes, especially in the past couple of years. What are you thinking about on a day-to-day basis and and what's keeping you up at night as you think about where we're at today versus let's say where we were, where we were at in 2020 or 2021? Sure. So yeah, you know, 2020, 2021, e-commerce was easy, Um, especially right before the iOS thing. Like literally it did not take, did not take much. And, and arguably what might be a product market fit in today's today's climate um, might not have been today in today's climate might have been back then, right? People were stuck in their home and just buying anything. Didn't even have to be a good ad. And what 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 keeps me up at night now, what I'm most focused on is is the community piece, the the value add and connecting with our customers. You you look at um, and I've, I've spoken about this before, where you know, our offering or anyone's offering falls on the need want scale and consumers behavior has consistently shifted through the years um, with the slight anomaly of, of the pandemic where they want to connect with a brand and the farther it is on the want side versus the absolute essential need side, the more important it is where that consumer wants to feel some sort of connection. Um, and the, the writing on the wall of that being the case is is there in front of us. You, you're you looking at these, um, for lack of better words, celebrities or influencers that have done a really good job with social media connecting with their fans. And now they're launching brands and they're just instantly successful. You know, there's the, the, the people that started on the content side, like Mr. Beast, who's launched multiple instantly successful brands. And then you you look at the the Kim Kardashian or the Kardashians in general, multiple that have, you know, built, they've taken their celebrity, their influence, and they've parlayed it into the business. And and both have, you know, two of them have a one with a you could argue a billion dollar valuation, whether that's still the valuation or not, significantly in the nine figures though. And you look at um Kim Kardashian who her brand, they're talking about it going public and it being the the IPO that the actual market needs, which is which is wild to think of. But the the economics are there. So you're seeing it from that side and then reverse engineering it, going the opposite of how brands go. But I think it's just further validation that you have to connect with your consumers. And and it is of the utmost importance. It's more about just the product. It's about the experience. Yeah, I think that that makes total sense. It's that I, I think the need want scale is a crucial thing to consider and really just having that that value first mindset, right? To make sure that you're creating value, whether it's uh, tangible or intangible value, it's, it's the emotional component as well that 
the consumer feels on the other end, right? But I am curious to get your your, your take on something here, John, on the basis of what has taken place in the last couple of years. Um, you know, we're coming from a grow at all costs type of market, right? And I, I think that to your point, e-commerce was a bit easier uh, during the last few years versus where it is at today. What's your take in terms of, you know, what founders of e-com brands need to think about from a shift in mindset in terms of how brands were operating in, again, let's say 2020, 2021 versus 2023. What's that shift of, of things they need to consider, things they need to look at then versus now? I think the the big thing is, is you know, depending operators, founders, you know, there's a few different doors that they can go, right? They can try to try to bootstrap it themselves. Um, and I think if, if, if that's the approach you're taking, um, not much has changed in the sense that if you're bootstrapping yourself, you care about profitability, right? You're caring about about growing, but but not at all costs. If you if you jump to the other door where it's the hey, let's just let's just grow at all costs, right? We have twenty million. We only need to worry about six months of runway. Let's scale and raise another uh, set of money. At that point, that's all changed, right? Um, VCPE money. It's 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 one. It's extremely tougher to come by now, um, and it comes with terms and conditions and comments that are scary. Um, but that's even if you're getting an offer. I think watching the correction of of the last couple of years for direct to consumer ecom, it's it's not an easy path. So I think if if you are going the 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 path of of raising, I think at this point. And profitability probably was always in the equation, but you're caring a little bit more about it than you did you did before, right? It's not acceptable to to go the route of we'll figure it out later, right? Or or using some some napkin math that yeah, you know, we'll just stop spending in five years and it'll all be profitable. You know, that's it was kind of given validity before. Um without necessarily the right reasons. Yeah, I think I think that's spot on. And the other thing I would just add is that you're seeing a lot more brands pay attention to not just their direct consumer online presence, but what what's taking place offline and how they can integrate themselves into an offline retail aspect as well, right? And then determining how do you really bridge that data? How do you leverage IRI data? How do you, you know, really measure the endpoint of that consumer across those different channels, be it offline and online and, and really marry that story together. So it's, it's interesting to, for sure to see that, you know, there's a bit of a uh, divergence that's taken place in terms of the type of brand and how they operate. To your point, you might have that hardcore D2C brand where absolutely, if they've got that bootstrap mentality, they've been focusing on profitability since day one. And then on the flip side, you've got the brands where they're looking at that growth and market share and integrating more than just you know, online channels into their strategy and really figuring out how they how they navigate that. Yeah, no, you're spot on. Direct to consumer is a sales channel. It's not necessarily a business in its own accord, right? Like, um, you're seeing a lot of the, and I'll use this word semi loosely, but thought leaders in the space, um, really, they're they're focused on the other channels, right? Um, which is which is wild because. Not a lot of people were, you know, you go three years ago, two and a half years ago, everybody would be like, ew, 
actual in-person retail disgusting but <laughs> brick but and now, mortar <laughs> yeah why would i ever do that and and now that's part of the strategy right and it's an interesting piece because um to get in to get into retail at scale it is very very expensive from a from a cash cash suck cash flow perspective right you're you're having to manufacture take the cost of that and a lot of the big box retailers and traditional retailers they have some pretty pretty um one-sided terms on 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 how they're going to pay and how much they're going to pay it it really is a volume game to get you know sick profit of significance so it it kind of forces you to possibly have either a really strong d2c channel that can support the growth or or looking at actually raising or or borrowing yeah for sure it's it's you know you look at the let's just, let's just call it a poster child brand like a liquid death right i mean they've done yeah. amazing things online and offline and they've grown to massive scale but you also have smaller brands out there an example one would be um you know a dc brand called live tinted which is a makeup brand for um individuals of uh different skin tones and complexions and they started D2C, but then they started expanding into Ulta early, right? And and um, they're taking that as a part of the overall strategy so that they're kind of everywhere to everyone in their audience cohort, but kind of everywhere to everyone. And they're meeting consumers where they are rather than assuming they're going to capture the consumer online only and assuming that's the only place they are, right? And again, maybe that was the case when we were all locked down uh in a pandemic and we couldn't shop as we normally would but now things you know i, I think it's just um it's opened everybody's eyes to a slightly different strategy and john even for your business i mean it may not be considered offline retail but you've got a netflix show right so let's talk about that because ultimately that's not a direct to consumer sales channel but how is that how did that even come about and how is that impacting the business sure so it, it definitely to this day still still impacts the business um I was looking at our post-purchase survey data this morning in a report that I get, and it's still, you know, it's, I think it was in sixth or seventh place, and we're pretty diversified on our lead sources. Um, on But where did you first hear about us? The Netflix show. So it was it was a process. So Brandon Curran, who's the face of our brand, um, he started off as, as just doing reviews, paying for our boxes. Um, we We quickly put him into our influencer program. And then from that, um, the relationship grew and we made him an offer to come on full-time as as the face of the brand. So shortly after he came on full-time, we really upped the amount of content we were, we were um, putting out every single month. And it caught the eyes of a production studio called High Noon Entertainment. Their um, two feathers in their cap are um, Cake Boss, and uh, fixer upper, so two, um, two shows that that honestly, in in some capacity or another, involved a brand. Um, so they were definitely speaking our language. They shot. Um, I don't even know if this is still a term, but a sizzle reel, which typically you take and you shop to get money for a pilot. So they shot a sizzle reel with us. Took it to History Channel. History Channel sat on it for six months, said no. They took it to Discovery Channel. Discovery Channel sat on it for six months, said no. They and and they're simply asking for the money from one of those two networks to film a pilot. 
to then have to ask for money again. Um, in 2019, January, so this is a, over a year at this point, we've been working on it, about a year and a half since film. Um, they took it to Netflix in January 2019. Netflix, um, basically in the meeting, said, yeah, we'll do it. We'll we'll do this. We don't do pilots. We're we're gonna we're gonna give you the money for the first season and we want write a first refusal on the next seven. And it was off to the races. We started filming in the second half of 2019 um for about six months, came back in January 2020 and uh filmed just some miscellaneous scenes so that everything was was tied together the way the editors wanted it to be. And then complete radio silence crickets. Netflix is not fun to work with because they were a business and they're viewing us purely as talent, which the questions we're asking, they don't even, the people we're talking to don't even have the answers, um, which was frustrating, but I get it. They're a gigantic you know, corporation. But fast forward, uh, July 4th weekend, 2020, the show dropped. And it it definitely definitely changed momentum for us. We were in the middle of the pandemic, which was um, amazing time for e-commerce and a, even a better time for a a company sending survival outdoor gear. Um, so it, it was it was perfect timing. Leading up to the show, we were getting about one hundred twenty five thousand, one hundred thirty thousand unique visitors a month on our site. In July 2020, we had 1.2 million unique visitors. Now they don't. They, it's not like oh, we 10x it, so we 10x the business. The reality that traffic did not behave in the same manner as as targeted paid traffic. It was a much different buyer. But some of our ideal persona, ideal perfect VIP customers were in that mix too. So we definitely saw and saw a massive uplift. So how did you? measure that and I, I understand i mean obviously there's the aspect of running the campaign and then looking at site traffic um coinciding with the dates that the show is airing etc but what about to your point the purchasing journey right how did you um look at the measurement around those consumers and their consumer the, the difference in consumer behavior of the traffic that was being generated from the show versus a direct response paid ad on instagram or search or something like that so would love to just unpack that. What was your strategy there? Yeah, so it was it was tough. Um, the most tough part about it, it was was leading up to was forecasting because there was no case study. There was no use case on a scenario like this. The closest thing we could find was the TV show Duck Dynasty where they had the duck calls they were selling. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, yeah, but the fundamental problem with that is they were on traditional TV where there was a new episode every every week. So it was a slow build. While this is, you know, eight episodes of 30 minutes a piece, four hours, especially in the pandemic, that's a that's a night. You're going to watch that in a night. So there was no real data to suggest how to forecast, how to plan. So that was the 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 biggest thing. Um once we got past that, yeah, and the the traffic's tough to track too because you're really just looking at um Google traffic, both paid and unpaid, because people are searching for you after watching the show, and then direct traffic. Um, so really search, search paid, and direct is where we saw this huge uptick and where 99.9% .9 of the uptick was occurring. So it was really easy to, to understand it. Um, 
but yeah, it did not did not behave the same way. Um, a a, a multi touch approach is is what worked best. So uh, the reprospecting, retargeting campaigns that that we would tr traditionally run for a a much smaller period of time, we were running for for a longer period of time and still seeing uplift from that extended extended run. Um, even at its best, conversion rate was was only about between a third and a half um of of traditional paid traffic but it it was a it was a one-time purchase it we saw a nice uptick in the subscription side but a lot of it was they were buying something from the show um that they saw and then it was you know they weren't going to convert for another 90 days as we slowly marketed to them slowly sent them um, links to content and explain what our community was about. It was a much, much, much slower, slower sell. And it wasn't, um, it it wasn't like we knew what we were doing per se, right? We were just trying to put ourselves in in the eyes of of that new consumer, and and trying to, you know, we had a few different ways a campaign could go based on behavior, but really just trying to be, um, not salesy at all. Um, because people people don't like to be sold to. There's a place in time to 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 really ask the hard questions and ask for the business and give a promotion. But for the most part, especially someone that's watching a TV show for their enjoyment, um, they don't want to then immediately be hammered by by that brand. So it was it was a it was a much slower slower sell. Interesting. So it sounds like there was. There was probably an element of a reduction in customer acquisition costs just based on the nature of how the customer was acquired, but LTV for those consumers was not as good as the LTV for a consumer that you would go out and capture yourself via paid ads. Correct. Yeah. Con converted at about half the rate. LTV was between a third and half of of traditional LTV. So they they weren't now you you take out though, you you go into a a, a a, a cohort of that that influx and they were our ideal customers um obviously the averages bring the mean brings it down because there were a lot that had no no intention of of buying no intention of getting more than ever getting the ten dollar thing they saw on the site so there's a lot of data in there but in there was a sliver of the most perfect ideal customers who just hadn't heard of us before. Were you running um, post-purchase surveys for those those one-time purchasers as well, and getting a, getting an understanding of just kind of who they were that way? Yeah. So, so the post-purchase survey, um, it, a, a couple of ways. One, we use software on the the front end for attribution, since attribution is 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 a nightmare. It's it's checks and balance on on that. Just trying to see from a from a, a different source if we're we're seeing the same trends that this you know this channel is working better better than another other than that it's it's where our focus is on the content side so if we see that that we're you know TikTok this month is is leading the way and the advertising dollars don't necessarily state that that is the is the truth um in the sense that yes, if we're spending eighty percent on, on TikTok, TikTok should be the majority lion's share of the post-purchase survey data. So when we see the, um, when we when we see that the differences, we know we just have to take it up a level, and and produce um, both quality and content, quality and qual quality and quantity 
um, content on those channels. So like right now, um, we're struggling a bit on, bit on Meta and and TikTok, but we're seeing YouTube where we advertise very little leading the way for us. So because of the advertising struggles, but the post-purchase survey data is showing YouTube. So we're increasing the frequency of of some of our content currently on YouTube, kind of leaning into it a little. Yeah, that that data is crucial for that, right? To even just identify which channel and and what to what approach to take on that channel. I think it's really easy for um, e-com brands and founders and just you know DTC marketers to look at it and say, well, that ad didn't convert. Um, that 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 ad is the raw ass is bad. We need to turn it off. Is that really the case? Because maybe you're actually you know, you're mining in the right field, but you just have to take a different tool to it, right? You have to take a different tool towards how do you capture that? What's the angle? What's the approach? What's the creative? What's the content look like? And even what's the skew that you're marketing to that audience? And uh, rather than operating only off of assumptions, it's 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 hypothesis testing, right? It's There's so it's many variables, so many variables, continuously testing. But then to your point, bringing that data in, right? Like, run those post-purchase surveys, make sure you're engaging with your customer after you've actually acquired them, get an understanding and almost build, if you can, a customer 360 map, like, you know, leveraging a CDP or otherwise, build that customer 360 map, know your customer and know how to capture that cohort of audiences. But getting getting back to metrics, because this is such an important point for the listeners, um, customer acquisition costs are rising. Um, subscription box brands, one of the hardest things for them is not only customer acquisition costs rising, but then maximizing LTV. I want to understand your, your take on this. What, what's your, what's your approach and your strategy to, um, navigate these two challenges coupled with iOS now 17, I think 0.5, uh, around the corner, uh, and all the privacy things like what, what's your take in terms of just customer acquisition, retention, and really um, weaving it all together to to succeed even in this rapidly changing environment that we're in. Yeah, so so customer acquisition costs in in 2015. I wish I knew what I knew now. Um, we Don't were getting, we all? <laughs> yeah, we were getting customers for less than five dollars a piece. Um, now you know we're in a short eight years later. We're going. Um, I'm screaming from the rooftop, scale, scale, scale. When we find campaigns where we can get customer acquisition costs of $80 or less, like go, like spend, spend until the diminishing returns. So I don't care how much we'll, we'll figure it out. And um, it's, it's really changed. We've, we've cared about customer retention and, and worrying about churn we 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 made it a huge priority back in 2019 um in 2020 when it wasn't cool um no one no one really cared everybody's like oh just get another customer um now of course the the minds everybody's like oh it is oh i've heard a million times through my life it's easier to keep a customer than get a new one this is what they meant so um it matters so i i think as long as you can extend the life cycle of the customer, it's it's huge. Um, there's there's a million different ways to skin the cat. We're currently testing um, uh, automatic discount, where we're just reaching out to them before they churn 
because we know that's a tough, tough spot after that third order sitting, hey, you don't even have to do anything. We've added this to your account. Here's a credit. Your next purchase, it'll just come, it'll come off the top. Um, we don't have enough data yet on it. We're we're probably two months away from having enough data to at least make an educated guess on how the data finishes. Um, but but little things like that, little additional touch points um that, that any brand can do just to engage customers. You know, we're looking at while we don't have enough data on the the that three to four month span, we're already talking about doing a, a 12 to 13 month span or 12 to 13th order span where we see another slight dip. And then we're going to run both of those in conjunction and see. So awesome, man. It's, a, it's such a cool strategy. And I think, you know, going back to our earlier part of the conversation about bridging offline and online and just <clears throat> different ways to get in front of your customer experiences like that are just, it's such a great way, not just to solidify your stance with those customers that are getting the experience, but also the audiences they reach as your creators and influencers, as they're talking about it and, and hyping up their experience. Right. So just such an awesome experience. Also really happy to hear that your swag bag uh, was valued at what it was versus the conference swag bags. Cause I can't tell you yeah. how many of the damn like hand sanitizers and little foam tchotchkes I got. So good on yeah. you for having solid swag bags. <laughs> Thank you. So, John, we're we're wrapping up today, and I think this was awesome. The listeners are, I'm sure, going to take a lot away from the show. But just before we close out, what's one piece of advice that you would like to give to fellow D2C ecom founders as we navigate the coming years ahead? Um, I think that when we talk about the coming years, it's it's interesting because the end part of that is a much greener pasture. Um, it's going to be some some challenging years where we're going to continue to not only have customer acquisition issues and and retention issues, but you know ec larger economic climate issues, right? And I think if you can just hunker down and and care, get back to the basics, um, listen to your customers, try to retain your customers, surprise and delight, and you can do it all profitably. Um, through this window, I think you're in such an amazing position when you get out of it. And I think legitimately so many opportunities are going to be out there from both customer acquisition to potential um, acquisitions yourself. I think there's a lot of opportunities or mergers in, in the next couple of years, but the other side of it, it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be, it's going to be great when, when the economy is rebound. For sure. Awesome advice, John. Thanks so much for the time today. It was great having you on the show. I know our listeners are going to love a lot of what you talked about. Definitely a unique take on everything from the Netflix experience to the tank to your marketing strategies. So really appreciate you joining us today. To everyone tuning in and listening and watching, watching today to Hypergrowth, thanks again for uh, joining us and uh, stay tuned for the next episode of Hypergrowth. Take care. All right.